Hello and welcome to the Providence College Podcast. I'm Michael Hagan from the class of 2015, and I'm joined by producer Chris Judge from the class of 2005. In PC's continuing celebration of 50 years of women undergraduates, our guest today is fittingly one of the college's most distinguished alumni, a judge on the Rhode Island District Court, whose roots in Providence and experiences as an educator led her to the legal profession. Named a district court judge in 2019, she also serves on the board of directors of the Rhode Island Foundation and received a personal achievement award from the Providence College National Alumni Association last summer. As we continue to celebrate Black history and begin our celebration of this Women's History Month, we're fortunate enough to hear from somebody who is making both. It is our honor to welcome her honor, Judge Melissa DeBose, to the podcast. Judge DeBose, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. That was quite an introduction. I'm very excited to meet with you. So tell us a little bit about your role as an associate judge on the Rhode Island District Court. What kind of cases do you adjudicate? So I'm currently sitting uh, at the Garrahee Complex, downtown Providence. Um, as a district court judge, I'm assigned to the arraignment calendar, which basically means whenever someone is uh, formally charged with a crime, they have to be presented before a judge to be formally arraigned where those charges are formally lodged in the system. So on that calendar, I have the opportunity to uh, not only apprise people of what they're being charged with, uh, but most importantly on that calendar, I'm able to make a bail determination um, as to whether or not somebody's going to be um, released uh, back to the community or if there's some type of surety that bail that needs to be set. So for the most part, that's what I'm doing here um, in the sixth division. I've also have served on both the civil calendar in Kent County, where I did the eviction calendar during the early days of the pandemic, which was um, was quite challenging, and also the criminal calendar there in uh, Washington, in Kent County, excuse me. So what values are most important in your work as a judge? I would think that for me, the most important value for a judge is uh, your compassion and empathy. Uh, being able to meet people where they are, when in many cases, when they appear before uh, the court, they're at a really low point uh, in their life. And so to meet those individuals, um, court users with empathy and compassion um, is, is critical and it's vital. Uh, I, I also think that that's important because it instills faith in the system that people will get treated fairly when they appear in court, that there isn't this presumption um, that this person is guilty. And so I really go out of my way to approach any litigant or anybody who's coming before me um, with that same kind of compassion and empathy that I would uh, hope that would be given to me if I were unfortunately in their position. So now you weren't always in the legal profession. Um, what led you from a career in education to a career in law? Yeah, I can tell you, you know, I always will go back to my teaching years in Providence. I loved being a Providence public school teacher. Uh, I taught history at the Textron Chamber of Commerce Public Charter School, uh, and then I went over to teach history at Central High School. Um, I always said that my life dream was to be a teacher. I assumed that I would always be a teacher. And so it was really a, a tragedy that kind of changed that trajectory for me. Um, while I was teaching at the charter school, I had a student of mine who um, I just adored who was a member of my student council, who was uh, just a bright spot in my day, uh, loved by the community, uh, just a really creative kid. He was a great break dancer. He was just, everything about this young man was just phenomenal. And uh, in April of his senior year, uh, he committed a horrendous uh, murder of another student. And it was at that time where 
you know, you can imagine that that kind of shocks the community in the small charter school. But it was also a real eye opener for me. You know, as much as, you know, and as well as I think I knew this student, um, there was this whole other life that he was li living as a member of a Southeast Asian gang that I just didn't know. And um, at that point, the students were really reaching out to me kind of as kind of uh, as the advocate. You know, what's going to happen to the student? How does this case going to be handled through the courts? And I didn't really have the best answers. And uh, one thing about the family court and juvenile proceedings, that's a pretty closed environment. So there's not a lot of, um, I don't want to say transparency, it's just it's closed for obvious reasons. You want to protect our children who are going into those courts. But it also means there's a lot of kind of questions that people have about how that system works. And so it was at that point um, where I, it was the spark. It was, you know what, I need to be an advocate in a way that is, extends beyond what I can do in the role as a teacher. So it was at that point that I applied to law school, Roger Williams Law School. I had moved from the charter school over to Central High School. And I gotta tell you, the, the four years that it took me to get my law degree as an evening division student at Roger Williams Law School, a bit of a blur, uh, being a full-time teacher. I think a couple of kids came uh, during that time. It was probably some of the best teaching that I've ever done. And I say that because I always will take the opportunity uh, to thank the, the students at Central High School for really helping me to be successful. The class management, classroom management and the assignments, the behavior, I had no issues. Those four years, the students really carried me through. And I think it was important for them for me to be successful and to become a lawyer because they wanted to have a, somebody who looked like them um, also represent them in, in the courtrooms. And so uh, that was just you know a charge that I have. Um, it, I get excited when I even think about that. I still am in touch with a lot of those students um, who I just thank so much for, for giving me the support to get me through that, that those, those four years. And it was tough. So how does somebody become a judge? And uh, what was your path to from uh, becoming a lawyer to um, becoming a judge? What was that path like? My trajectory was is kind of um, is kind of funky, and you know people are always kind of thinking, how do you go from you know public school teacher to you know district court judge? Um, so I have to kind of go back a little bit, um, Mike. To be quite honest, so my first job as a um, as a lawyer, um, ironically enough, was um, as a special assistant attorney general under Patrick Lynch, serving as a juvenile prosecutor. So you can imagine you know, the sense of betrayal that a lot of my students felt when, when they found out, like, Ms. DuBose, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, a public defender or a, a champion of ours, and here you are now prosecuting people just like the student that you loved and which who inspired you to go on to law school. And it took a while, and it was important for them to understand, and, and it's important for people to understand that the special role of the prosecutor, that role as gatekeeper, Having the discretion to do justice is really what makes that a really powerful office. And so the experiences that I had at the attorney general's office kind of matched my love of teaching. And in a lot of ways, when I, when I really understood um, the power of that office and how you really can not only um, give redress to, to victims of um, crime, 
but you can also make sure that due process is being followed and that people are actually getting their fair shake. And I took that oath very seriously as, as a prosecutor. So after being a prosecutor, my career kind of took this sharp turn uh, where I was recruited to being in-house counsel for a large French energy management company, which was completely in left field. I had really no corporate experience. I had been in the public, public sector uh, for all of my adult working life. Um, and it really, unfortunately, was for financial reasons. You, being, you know, parents living in Providence uh, and having two kids in in um, independent schools, it really was kind of like, eh, I, I I have to make some sacrifices. Um, I can tell you that that ten years that I was at Schneider Electric really kind of broadened my um, horizons in a way that I hadn't anticipated. You know, that was the first time, you know, going back being a poor girl growing up in Providence. You know, it was the first time I had a passport. It was the first time that I had left um, the United States. Um, I was interacting with folks that were completely different than anyone that I had um, previously had worked with. And it was really great. And so I did that work at Schneider Electric for about 10 years. I was doing government compliance. I was doing some social, um, uh, like uh, not social, some community service related projects through that corporation. They were good corporate citizens. So I was able to kind of tap into my uh, public uh, service um, roots uh, there at Schneider, which was great. And so while I was at Schneider, someone had a, mentioned that a vacancy was opening on the district court and they really encouraged me to apply. You know, at that point, I liked the work and I loved the work at Schneider Electric, but I was at another transition point in my life where it was time to kind of get back to where I began, which was um, back in the community. And so when there was a district court position that opened, um, it was kind of a no brainer for me. Um, if you know anything about the district court, a lot of people refer to it as the people's court uh, because you're doing a little bit of everything. It's again, it's the arraignments where people are, are coming before a judge to hear what charges are being uh, levied against them. It's also where people go in for small claims if they wanna uh, try to be made whole. It's where uh, your evictions happen. It's where civil domestic cases go. So it's really a court that meets people where they are at the early phase of the um, criminal justice system. And that's where I wanted to be. It kind of goes back to teaching and it made me feel like this is a place where I can get back to that love of being one-to-one, face-to-face, that one-one scale um, with court users and with citizens in Rhode Island. So I um, went through the process just it mirrors the federal system in a way where there's a nomination. Uh, well, first you go before a judicial nominating committee uh, where they vet candidates. Uh, once you pass through that phase, um, the governor makes a recommendation. Then there's advice and consent from the uh, judiciary committee. And then it goes to the full Senate for a vote. And so that was a very long process. I think it took um, probably about a year from the, the first time that I kind of raised my hand uh, to being sworn in, a uh, very long path um, and, you know, not looking back. I mean, I'm still kind of every day when I when I enter into the courtroom, I am just so honored and so um, 
I feel so blessed to be able to, to, to do this job. I'm interested in a term that you've used a couple of times so far in this conversation, uh, court users. Um, I, I, I feel like um, I, I'm used, so used to hearing terms, um, you know, and, and mostly from television in, in my case, but um, terms like defendant, plaintiff, prosecutor, you know, these different kind of parties that come to the court um, looking for, you know, though, though they may have a different idea of what justice would look like, you know, they all come to the court looking for justice. Could you say a little bit about your choice, your choice of the term court users? What, um, why do you use that term specifically? Yeah, I, I do. I do use that term because um, some of these court terms, they can be really loaded. And I think when you think of the defendant, it conjures up many times this presumption that the person is culpable or that they're guilty. And so because what I've seen and what we realize when you're in the court every day, there are lots of different reasons why folks are coming into court. Sometimes they may be witnesses. Sometimes they may be uh, somebody there who's there just to support somebody. They could be somebody who's there as uh, who's the litigant or the plaintiff who's actually suing somebody to be made whole. They all kind of, when I approach them, they are all the same. These are people who are availing themselves of the system, of our judicial system. Um, and so it's a term really of respect that I have, that we're here as public servants. Um, and so you're going to use the court and they're coming in and they're using the court because they have a right to do that. And then we're, and they have a right to have a judge who would perceive them at that way, that they, this is an honor for me to be able to provide a service for the folks who are coming in before us. Thank you for explaining that term. That's really interesting. And um, it, it, it does. It shows that uh, your your commitment to all parties who come to the court. Um, you know, you're, that, that um, it's it's not your role to be partial to um, any any given side, any given party. That um that that you're you're impartial um, in dispensing justice for all parties. Um, in the same vein, you you sit on the state's committee for um, racial and ethnic fairness in the courts. Um, what is this committee's function and goal? Yeah. The so the committee on racial and ethnic fairness in the courts was a committee that was created by our chief judge, Paul Sattel, back in 2020. And it was in response to that horrendous summer of um, the kind of racial unrest that was in cities throughout um, the United States, including here in Rhode Island, um, particularly particularly um, in response to the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and so many others. Um, so the committee really started as an ad hoc group. At first, there were a handful of us judges of color um, who were meeting and kind of having to try to process what's happening and how do we as judges respond. Um, we have judicial canons that prevent judges from doing and saying certain things. And so when we're living in an environment that is so politically charged, but at the same time, you know, as a black woman with two uh, brown boys, you know, how do I navigate that as a judge without um, violating those judicial canons. So I can't go to protest. I can't, I can't do things like that. So the committee really um, formed out of that kind of kitchen table group of judges that were kind of processing and talking about it in a way that was a safe space. And then the chief judge um, issued what was a pretty remarkable statement um, from the Rhode Island Supreme Court, which was signed off by all five judges um, that did a couple of things. It acknowledged the fact that there was systemic racism, um, that the courts aren't immune to that. Um, acknowledged that 
there's work to be done and that we needed to find those places where systemic racism may um, exist in our court so we can be better. And it also um, was a call for judges to be introspective about how they make decisions and if implicit bias ever plays a role. So it was a really bold, beautiful statement that I encourage anybody to kind of go on the court's website and pull that statement up. It's remarkable. So that statement uh, really led to some momentum. And I think it was the chief judge's commitment to creating this committee to, to formally look at all of those things. And so he formed this committee, it's 12 judges and some court administrators. We serve on the family court, district court, superior court, Supreme Court, and workers' compensation court. Um, and we split ourselves up into three committees. And that's what, pretty much what our charge is. We want to identify areas where there may be systemic racism or a disparate impact based on ethnicity in our courts. Uh, it's training judges to look at implicit bias and in, um, in their work and to be introspective. Um, and what I'm really excited about in the committee that I chair, it's the public engagement committee. And the goal of this committee is to uh, bridge the uh, trust gap that I believe formed or has been forming between court users and judges. And the way that we do that is by getting judges off the bench and having real conversations with folks who use our systems, use the courts. So it's been really exciting. We've had some exciting campaigns. You may have seen some, some ripped up buses uh, driving around town with featuring faces of judges with some court, um, with some quotes, judges reflecting on um, what justice looks like when it works. Um, there have been some TV ads and PSAs that have been running that our committee has been partnership with the Center for Health and Justice Transformation put together. So it's a really exciting committee. We've had, um, we did a podcast, we've done listening sessions, we've been tackling issues like um, cost and fines and the impact of those things on court users. And I have to tell you, this committee, we meet every single week, either in the full committee or subcommittee. And we're making some really transformative steps in our courts that have gotten some great press, but more importantly, have really been changing folks' lives. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. So now you are a, uh, you're a proud alumna of the college and um, you- uh, I am. And uh, so I'm wondering, and remind me, what, what did you study as an undergrad? I know you taught history in the public schools, but did you study politics or? I was poli sci. Okay. I, I studied political science with kind of a history minor. What, uh, what lessons and values from your undergraduate years at Providence College influence your work as a judge today? Well, I can tell you, first of all, that I absolutely loved my time at Providence College. And it's so weird. And it, it's part of the reason why I love Providence so much. So I grew up in the Mount Hope section of, of Providence. And Providence College is probably maybe three miles away. So I, when I moved, when I was accepted to Providence College and um, moved into off-campus housing on Oakland Ave, it was like I was stepping into a different world. I mean, I might as well have been in a different state. It was that different. And so I fell in love with Providence College, probably the first day that I moved into that kind of crappy apartment on Oakland Ave. Um, and so I also was happy to be at Providence College my freshman year was the year of when they went to the final four with Billy Donovan and Coach Patino. So there was a vibrancy and an energy on the campus that was unmatched until yeah. today, which I'm really excited about. Um, I'm reminded often from my uh, sons that, no, I am no longer a student at Providence College. No, I cannot go to Eaton Street for a keg party. Um, but it was, it was that kind of vibe. And so 
there was a community spirit of love that was at Providence College when I started. And I think a lot of it had to do with that energy around the basketball team, quite frankly. But the political science department at that time had two really just phenomenal uh, professors, uh, Mark Trudeau, Mark Hyde and uh, Paul Trudeau, who were just like legends. And they saw something in me, which I hadn't really realized. I'd never really thought of myself as an intellectual. I was, I'm definitely a nerd. Um, I'm naturally curious and, um, you know, smart, but I didn't see myself as kind of being an intellectual. And so they really kind of drew that curiosity out in me in a way that was really life-changing. And so a love of wisdom and knowledge and asking questions and asking the right questions um, was, was a gift that I got from, um, from that department for sure. I could say there was uh, probably the love of my life, uh, Sister Scully, who had a compassion and a forgiveness that was really, really um, special for me. And so those times when as students, as all students, you know, you find yourself making decisions that you're not necessarily proud of. She was always a really safe person to kind of talk things through. And she showed me a lot of love and support. So I think the compassion and love and the intellectual curiosity are the things that still kind of drive me today. Today, that that goes right back to Providence College. And you, uh, you, you began to mention your uh, your youth and childhood in Providence in the Mount Mount, Mount Hope neighborhood. Um, but uh, could you say a little bit more about about growing up in Providence? What what that was like? Yeah, it was exciting. You know, it's funny when when you're poor, but you live in a community with family and support. You don't realize. That, that you're poor. And so at that time in the, uh, I'm going to age myself here, in the 1970s, growing up in Mount Hope, there was a predominantly black neighborhood, uh, which that strip running right between North Main Street and um, Hope Street. So funny. That's where I live now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that neighborhood was unbelievable. It really was, and I'm not you know, overstating uh, this, it really was its own little village. And um, I loved growing up there. I loved being in the blizzard of 78 on, in Mount Hope. And if you know those hills, uh, there's Steve going down Lancaster Street, you know. So um, that was where I grew up. And that's where my family was from for generations and generations. And my mom was the youngest of 14. So you can imagine there's a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles that were all right there in that strip. We had a health center if we needed anything. My aunt worked at the health center. We had a little corner store um, right there in the corner of Forest. I mean, there was everything you needed. At the time we were going, I was at Holy Name School um, at the other end, so that was an easy walk to school. Uh, so I loved that growing up uh, in the Mount Hope section. When I, you know, Holy name was was a challenge for me. And I go back and as much as I go think of Sister Scully being so wonderful, I had a not so wonderful sister, uh, Priscilla, when I was at Holy Name, uh, who I think changed my life in, for, in a really great way. When I was in third grade at Holy Name, I had Sister uh, Priscilla, who was just, I mean, just your, you picture your um, worst stereotype of, of an old nun, you know? So I had I asked a question, which I thought was a pretty, you know, innocuous question. I just asked, you know, well, like where were or when were the dinosaurs? Were they before or after uh, Adam and Eve? And it was infuriating. She was absolutely furious. 
And she called me a bold and brazen girl. And those, those words stuck and it hurt. And I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I, you know, didn't want to ask any more questions. I felt like she really hated me. And so at that point, it was her, that experience with her where I begged and begged and begged. And at that point, I, I was fixated on going to public school. I, I didn't want to be at, at Holy Name. I couldn't ask questions. The, the nuns hated me. Uh, so I thought, and there were some wonderful nuns there. And Miss Maceo, if you're listening to this podcast, my fourth grade teacher, um, I adore you and I love you. Um, but she was tough for me. And so I begged and begged and begged and my parents finally relented. And so in sixth grade, I was able to leave Holy Name and I started at Nathan Bishop. And I have to tell you, part of my love of Providence is not just the fact that we had this little village on Mount Hope, Walking and going to Nathan Bishop Middle School was probably one of the greatest gifts that my parents could have given me. At that time, um, you know, Nathan Bishop is down by Elm Grove Ave. You have a group of students coming from various neighborhoods, all different, all coming together in the perfect, most diverse public school. You do not have that kind of diversity today, unfortunately, in the uh, public schools. So we had Portuguese kids from Fox Point. We had black kids from Mount Hope. We had uh, Jewish uh, students that were around uh, Savoy in the Morris, um, St Morris Ave area, Morris Street. Um, and then we had white Irish kids coming in from like the Summit neighborhood. It was just a really cool place to be. And it was the first time I, I got to take Spanish. And it was just, um, I loved Nathan Bishop and I love that the diversity of Nathan Bishop. That's why I love Providence. There are so many different special groups of people that we all kind of coexist. And it's parochial in the sense that there are these little safe hamlets, but it's also okay to kind of explore. And so I just don't know that you have a scale, um, a city that has the small scale, but such a large vibrant community that uh, has everybody. So I, I love Providence. Yeah, with um, with your teacher's uh, words about um, you, you said that you were you were hurt when she called you bold and brazen. Have you come to um, have you come to? I, I, I would imagine as you went on that that might almost be something that you would come to embrace in the sense that I mean, oh, that's a badge of yeah, honor. Yeah, the world needs that more boldness and brazenness like that. So yes, I take bold and brazen became kind of a badge of honor for me, and I definitely tease that when I write my great American novel or my uh, biography, it's gonna be titled either The Bold and Brazen Girl, ironic, right? Or it would be um, The Black Girl with the Violin, which my sisters always laugh every time I say it. Um, but I love the image of it. When I was at Nathan Bishop, one of the things that I love was not just that I could take Spanish, I joined the All City Orchestra. And you don't see many uh, kids of color at that time playing stringed instruments. You just didn't. And I was the only um, Black girl that was part of that orchestra. So if you can just picture me walking home with all my cousins and their rough and tumble, going walking back up in uh, walking down Camp Street, and I had my little violin, it was like the really cool thing. So people would tease me, um, you know, but I had great defenders. My cousins would never let anything happen to me. But I was really proud of that violin. I wasn't very good in my mind. I was amazing. Um, 
and I'm sure my sisters were like, you were horrible. But I took a lot of pride in that violin because it, it took a stereotype and it took an image that was completely different. So I love that. You're very vocal about your love for Providence and um, your, your service in the courts and uh, through organizations like the Rhode Island Foundation reflect a deep, deep commitment to the city and the state. Um, so what are some of your favorite things uh, today about Providence? Um, what, what, what are some of your favorite things about life in the city? Well, first of all, Providence, as you know, it's, it's ever changing. So there's always these kind of pop up, you know, restaurants or exhibits. There's always something kind of new popping up. So it's never, it's not a stale city. And so there's always something to explore in Providence, which again, goes back to kind of the Buddy Cianci Renaissance city. Like, you know, you, Buddy Cianci could take a lot of hits. But I think that he was spot on when, when he kind of uh, dubbed the city the Renaissance City because it, it is just that. So I do everything. I'm, I'm, you're going to see me at the farmer's market, at the at summit uh, market. Uh, you're going to see me strolling through uh, being a bird nerd in Swamp Point Cemetery with my binoculars. I got into birding during the pandemic. Uh, I'm going to shows downtown. Um, I, I really do enjoy the city. And so I like my court users, I use the city. I'm a, I'm a city user. So if there's something out there that, that's fun and happening, uh, most likely I wanna try to get a ticket. I wanna try to get a seat at that table. Um, in terms of my civic work, I, you know, I'm on boards and that's what I do. So the Rhode Island Foundation is a great board. I just was recently appointed to that board as a designee of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. Um, and they're doing great work. And that they've allowed me to kind of meet and interact with folks who are doing really great charitable work throughout the state and um, the great stewards of, of folks' money and endowments. So I love the work on the Rhode Island Foundation. So to the extent that I can, um, I will serve on boards and commissions. Um, I'm recently going to be on the advisory board for the Black Historic, uh, Historical Society, Heritage Society, excuse me. Um, I'm excited about that. Uh, we have Law Day coming up, so I'm going to be in classrooms talking to some students. So um, I'm, at the, I'm on the board, the Roger Williams Law School. I mentor students, so I take students around town so they can fall in love with the city. Uh, my goal being is to increase the pipeline, and I want students to stay here, and I want them to see and love the city as much as I do and drop roots here. And so I, I do a lot of work to kind of cheerlead the city to try to convince students to stay here. Well, thank you for all you do for our community. Of course. Um, changing gears a little bit. Um, one of the biggest stories in the news and, um, and happenings in the judicial world this year is Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement from the United States Supreme Court. Uh, President Biden, of course, was met with much praise as well as some criticism when he pledged, and I quote, the person I nominate to replace Justice Breyer will be somebody with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity and they will be the first black woman nominated to the United States Supreme Court, end quote. With the history of the court and the question of representation in mind, can you describe the significance of the president's pledge to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court? I think it's, it's enormous. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, the danger of uh, posing the, the a nomination as it will be a black woman, there is some, you, know, the, the, you alluded to it, the, the danger in that is that there are some people, not all, but the kind of see a highly qualified and black women as being mutually exclu exclusive, that, 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 that they're in some way are different. So that if you're highly qualified, you're, you're not a black woman, or if you're a black woman, you're not highly qualified. So I, I do think that there is some danger 
um, if you lead with color and not qualifications. Uh, but the quote that you cited, I think, um, does, a, does a couple of things. It leads with the qualifications, and then it follows with, it will also be somebody who happens to be a black woman. I think it's enormous, and I think it's really, really important. One of the questions that I was asked when I was uh, going through the nomination process is why diversity matters, and it does. And it's not just diversity of, of color or language or socioeconomics, um, all of those things matter. When you are different and when you have a different life experience, and not all black folks aren't monoliths, we're not all the same, but we do have a, a unique perspective. And that's a perspective that I believe is really important to include in the deliberative process. And so when it comes to the Supreme Court, where it is a deliberative court, it's incredibly important that the judges represent a wide range of worldviews. Um, so I'm really, I'm really excited about it. Um, I do see the danger and, and it bothers me sometimes. I do think it demeans um, some of the candidates when people assume, well, the only reason why you're gonna get this position is because you're black. And um, I think that uh, may have been an unforced error on the president's part for, for being so explicit. But on the other hand, as a black woman, you know, it feels great to have someone say, you know, we see something special in, in you as a black woman. We, we, we appreciate uh, that you do have um, a perspective that should be part of this conversation or part of the table. So in terms of traits and qualifications that are most becoming of a Supreme Court nominee, are these, are these traits or qualifications in any way different from those that make a good judge in general? Uh, what, what, what makes a Supreme Court justice different than um, another kind of judge? Yeah, I mean, it's different to the extent, like what I do, I'm not deliberating over constitutional questions. So the Supreme Court is really, it's, a, it's, it's, our, it's our Supreme Court. It is our deliberative, highest deliberative body, which is answering and weighing in on really consequential case, um, consequential uh, matters of constitutional proportions. So it's enormously important and it's incredibly different. One of the things that we do as a district court judge, like I said, it's it's you're rolling up your sleeve. It's your your one on one interaction. You're with litigants on the appellate level. Um, the parties to the case aren't necessarily appearing before the court. They're not. They have advocates who are who are arguing a position, who argue before uh, the justices. Uh, one of the traits that I think would be the most important for a Supreme Court judge is the ability um, to convince in order the ability to persuade your colleagues that their thinking on something may need be is different or I'm sorry one of the qualities is that uh, to be able to persuade your colleagues or your fellow justices um, that their position uh, isn't necessarily the correct one and so I think when I think of the Supreme Court I think of really great persuaders in that they're able to bring their colleagues along. I think it's incredibly important to have faith to our constitution. I think it's incredibly important that uh, justice and questions of justice is a living, I, I believe my own personal philosophy when it comes to the Supreme Court is that our constitution is not a dead document. I do believe that it's a living, breathing document that our forefathers could not have uh, foreseen or conceived of things like cyber and those types of things. And so there is some dynamism of the constitution 
um, that that is built in. And so I'd like to, to think that our justice will be someone who has a more expansive view of the Constitution in that they can recognize the applicability and how constitutional principles that are wedded in tradition apply and are still relevant today, but without being so static that it's immovable. Um, so that's my own personal philosophy uh, on it. I'm excited for it. Um, like I said, the, the judging that, that I do, it, it's that's your rough and tumble. That's your everyday. It's fast paced. Um, we're making decisions quickly. If somebody's appearing before us, we're making really fast rulings. So our judgment is kind of in real time, um, as opposed to the time that the Supreme Court or appellate courts can really take looking into an issue, reading those briefs, reading the memorandum of law and, and coming up with thoughtful decisions um, is, is different. What advice would you give to current students and young alumni who are considering a career in law? I would say yes, yes, and yes. Uh, you know, the law is not just being a lawyer or a judge. There are lots of different uh, entry points into the, the legal system. And that goes from court interpreters. This is a ton of different things that you could do as the legal that is within the realm of legal that's not necessarily being a lawyer. Having said that, I always think if there's something where you are passionate about, I would encourage everyone to pursue um, a legal career. I'm trying to get my sons. They're like, absolutely not. Um, it's special. And to be able to be an advocate and to be able to kind of represent that that third branch of government is is um, it's an honor. And so I would tell any student to seriously consider uh, what it, their passion is. And if it's anything that has to do with the legal to really explore it. And I would add, explore it here in Rhode Island because we have um, a rich bench, um, a bar, but um, I'd like to see younger people getting in this business and more diverse folks getting into this line of work. So I would encourage anyone to pursue a career in law if that's something that they were passionate about. I would not suggest that anybody go into a career in law because of you know the money. It's that that's not that wouldn't shouldn't motivate anybody to do any job, to be quite frank. But um, if you're passionate about justice and and environmental fairness and cyber, and there's so many areas of law that we don't even know exist yet, it really is a place where you could tap a new niche and make a great um, contribution to, to, to society. So um, we, we've mentioned uh, we've mentioned the Friars basketball team a couple of times over the course of this conversation, but uh, now I've, I've got to ask you, Judge DeBose, for a verdict. Um, I, I need to know, in your opinion, um, you know, the, the discourse around this team has been, you know, are, are they lucky? Are they good? What are, so I, I need to know your verdict, lucky, good, or both? I think that this team is just good. I don't think luck has anything to do with it. I think Coach Cooley is absolutely brilliant. But I also think, and this is uh, not a coincidence, I think that the players are playing at this high caliber, partly because of Friar Nation. I think that the fans and the students right now are propelling. And so these guys are playing and tapping into another gear. And so they're playing on a next level. I am so proud of PC students um, showing up and turning out for these games. I get chills. When I saw the Taylor Swift clip, I was like, this is like the best thing ever, 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 ever. If Coach Cooley doesn't get Coach of the Year, there is something fundamentally wrong. 
Um, so this team is this team is definitely special. I you know I I loved the early you know my Billy Donovan team back in '86 I think it was, but this team is now kind of that next handoff past the baton. These guys are just different. I'm I'm feeling Final Four. I'm I'm feeling them taking it. And uh, I, I think that's a judgment that we can all get behind. So uh, th thank you very much. Um, so Judge Debose, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much uh, for taking time out, out of your afternoon um, to 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 speak with us. I'll say for our listeners who you know they don't get to see the sausage getting made. Judge Debose is an incredibly in high demand woman. Uh, she's she's had phone calls. She's you know um, so it's uh, we really really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to have this conversation with us. Our listeners really appreciate it. Um, I've enjoyed it tremendously. So thank you very, very much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, Christopher, thank you for your, your work behind the scenes. This has been a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to hearing the final product and go Friars. Subscribe to the Providence College podcast in all the usual places, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as your smart speaker. If you like what you hear, please review and share with others. Thanks for listening and go Friars.